I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I am so thrilled to be joined today by Christina Sharp, who is a professor and tier one Canada research chair in Black Studies and the Humanities at York University in Toronto. She's the author of Monstrous Intimacies, Making Post-Slavery Subjects, In the Wake on Blackness and Being, and her new one is called Ordinary Notes. It's such a pleasure to have you here, Christina. It's really a pleasure to be here with you, Maris. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Thank you for writing this beautiful book. I want to start, perhaps the book starts with Ordinary Notes. It's a collection of 248 notes. You begin with the definitions of the word note. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the importance of definitions and how we think about how we use words and their various uses. Oh, that's a good question. Hazel Carby once said that I was a forensic etymologist, so I strive to be that. <laughs> I began with the definition of note and then much later the definition of ordinary mm -hmm. because I'm always interested in trying to think through and hold together and use as many of the varying definitions of a term that I can. So I tried to do that in, in the wake with the word wake. Mm -hmm. And certainly I really loved the way that note can be, you know, a brief thing written down to promote memory. Um, it can be musical, it can be a form of notation. And so I really wanted to try to keep, uh, you know, those different meanings circulating and pull them through the text. And I wanted to think about what the word note and then also the word ordinary, what they might mean in a Black life and anywhere in the world at this particular moment. I wanted to ask you about the form of the book, that it's composed of 248 notes. And 
I'm wondering how you decided what to include and how to organize them, what order. Yeah. Yeah, it is 248 written notes. There are some notes that are also visual notes, but there are 248 that are written. And surprisingly, I didn't actually move them around very much. Or I should say, I kind of had a sense of where I wanted things to be. My numbering was kind of a nightmare because as I kept writing notes, I would have to change the numbers. And so, um, and I, I'm sure that made to do that automatically, but I couldn't figure it out. So, so, so that was a bit difficult, but mostly the notes kind of stayed in the order in which I wrote them and assembled them. So, you know, after I sent it off, there was no real reordering of notes. I moved one or two notes around, but that was basically it. And because I had it, because I was already thinking about it in terms of sections. So the book has eight sections. And so that really helped with the sense of how I might want to organize things. And then also, you know, thinking also again about the first question that you asked me about the meaning of notes. Section six is preliminary entries toward a dictionary of untranslatable blackness. And that, and those are also notes. Those are notes on, I think, following what you said about the ways that we define words, the way that words define us, the ways that we enter words and animate them, perhaps for our own purposes. And so I invited a group of friends, colleagues, scholars, visual artists, writers, poets to define a word and to think it from the context of Black life. And so that then these notes are written, but they also become a kind of chorus and a, a kind of response to the ways that dictionary definitions often enact a particular kind of linguistic and other violence. What's a game where no one wins? The waiting game. When it comes to hiring, don't wait for great talent to find you. Find them first with Indeed. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. We streamline hiring with powerful tools that find you matched candidates. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed's hiring platform matches you with quality candidates instantly. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring platform, delivering four times more hires than all the other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash Maris. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash Maris. Indeed.com slash Maris. Terms and conditions apply. 
need to hire, you need Indeed. One of the things I loved about this book is how much it's informed by the work of your colleagues and friends and in that section in particular. But talk to me a little bit about including in the book, honoring in the book, the words of of people who it seems like you talk to very often, mm-hmm. some of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that my entire life has been so shaped by books and words that I think I wouldn't have known how to do it any other way. And I'm kind of obsessive. So there are (laughs) things that books that I've read that have left such a mark on me that, um, you know, I return to them all the time. When I was younger, people would say, people I think would think I was very strange because they would ask me a question and I would respond with a quotation from somebody else's, you know, writing or thinking. And, but that's, but I kind of, you know, have always felt that books catch me. And so the work of particular people I return to again and again, both because I'm a big rereader and every time I reread a book, I land somewhere different and some other thing opens up for me, both in terms of how I understand the work in front of me, but also for how I might understand the world. I hope that answers your question. It does. And featured in this wonderful profile view that came out today in the New York Times by Jenna Wortham, we hear a lot about your copy of Beloved. And then we, of course, get to see a photo of it towards the end of the book. And that seems like a really good illustration of of the kind of reading you're doing. Absolutely. (laughs) And partially, I think it's, um, you know, I, I think my first read tends to be a quick read. And then I go back and I read much more slowly and much more deeply. But it's also, I think, a kind of layering reading yeah, I've had that copy of Beloved for almost 30 years and it is completely falling apart, but it's my favorite copy of Beloved. I had it when I was in graduate school and I know that the, there's some writing in green ink and that's when I was reading it in Hortense Spiller's seminar <laughs> at Cornell University. So it's like I can map my life through this book. That's really lovely. And then, of course, one of your other notes that I loved is just quotes that you have pulled from from various books you've read that have have stuck with you and again having them ordered in a in a certain way gives them a new meaning Mm -hmm. yeah you know that's funny because I'm not even sure how I necessarily came to the order of those quotations (laughs) but I think as you as you read them yeah they do have a different kind of movement and force and they you know they make something right What's that poem called? The kind of poem that's a, a series of, of first lines. I don't know. My poetic terms are bad, but they do have a, a certain kind of force. And yeah, and they're just, there are, there are first lines that kind of grab you. And I think I write at some point, you know, there are, there are sentences or works that have, oh, what is it? There are, there are, there are words that have grabbed me. Oh, I don't remember it exactly now. But yeah, you know, like a line from counter narratives or 
a line from Joy Priest's book of first book of poems have really had profound impacts. I love that. And I, I love how your reading life is so tied into you quote Sadia Hartman mm-hmm. saying beauty is not a luxury and, and you expand that onto is beauty is a method. Yes. And that is such a key aspect of it. But I'm wondering if you could talk more about that in general. Absolutely. Um, And of course, I've remembered the two sentences. They are, I have collected (laughs) sentences and sentences have collected me. Um, Oh, that's I think that's very true. Yeah. So I wrote Beauty as a method first for a 2019 gathering to celebrate the artist Simone Lee and her solo show at the Guggenheim when she won the Hugo Boss Prize. And Simone had asked each of us to write something and to present work that was not about her work, but would bring together this group of Black women and that would be a way to bring our work into that space in connection with her work. And so I I wrote this piece and it's a, a kind of homage to my mother who through and in very difficult circumstances, always attended to beauty. And so I had come, I had forgotten that I had those Milcia series of, of hearts, ornaments that she was making and sewing by hand and they're pinned. And then there's a photograph of a dress she made me when I was six years old, as well as just a little circle of felt with pins in it. And I had forgotten that I had the the heart-shaped ornaments and the circle of pins. And when I found them again, it really struck me, you know, how much my mother's attention to detail would have affected how, how I move in the world. And then I thought, well, it wasn't just, it wasn't actually something frivolous or it was really a deep attention to what, how beauty sustains us through very, difficult times and through not so difficult times, but it was a deep commitment to beauty as a practice. And I think I learned deeply from that. Though, as I say, it wasn't until much later that I really realized, oh, this is a praxis and one that, that I have benefited from deeply. And then reading Saidiya's work, and I think that's from an interview that Rizvana Bradley did with Saidiya uh, in thinking about those young Black women's and girls' insistence that they could make a beautiful life in spite of the tremendous difficulties that they were facing, in spite of the deep anti-Blackness, and in spite of things like that became status laws, like you as a Black person can't do this and you will be punished for it. So yeah, a sort of commitment in Black life to beauty. I mean, think about like the the Sapos in Kinshasa. And this book is such a a lovely testament to, to your mother from the way she raised you to the way she held her hand in a variety of, of photos. Your family photos are just are stunning, and they, they are, of course, a big part of this. One of the images that stays with me from this book is the idea mm-hmm. that you had salons with your siblings and, and, yes. and your mother. Tell me about that. Yeah, and I don't remember for how many times we did it, but it was usually, there were four of us at that point, and sometimes just three. 
but yeah, we didn't have any money. And so my, my mother loved literature and she loved, you know, theater and ballet and, and music. And so she decided that we would, I don't know, once a month, once every other month, have what she called these Sunday teas. And she would, you know, make a pot of tea and she would bake something like a, <laughs> a pound cake. And as I said, she made this exquisite violet jelly. She read this recipe somewhere for violet jelly. And my brother Christopher and I would like be sent out to, because there was this, at the point, at the point, this was, there was like, there were like 10 acres across the road that were not developed. And so we would go and like pick violets and you would pick tons of violets to make two, like, or three tiny jars of violet jelly. So she would bring it out for that. And we would sometimes memorize, but also just read and recite pieces that we chose, like from, you know, Paul Lawrence Dunbar or Frederick Douglass or you know, Gwendolyn Brooks or, or whoever it was, the, the Black writers that she introduced us to because none of us ever had a single Black teacher or read a single book by a Black author when we were in elementary school, junior high school or high school. So it was just a sort of lovely, you know, I can remember very well standing in the living room in front of the TV and reciting and just feeling like, you know, super special and smart and loved and all of that. When you talk about some of the books that you read in school, you, you have a wonderful section of this book about Heart of Darkness and who gets to be the narrator of their story. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And Achebe uh, features very, very strongly in this too. Right. Well, you know, Achebe talks about reading Heart of Darkness when he was in secondary school and aligning himself with those people on the ship and then realizing, oh no, he's in the boat. He's not on the shore and, and what that did and how he had to sort of think himself out of the position of being, of, of either position really, because the position on the shore is a deep projection and misreading of Black life. And the position on the ship is the position of the colonizer. And so to try to get a, a kind of truer picture and understanding of, you know, what, what both of those positions might be. So yeah, I love that reading by Achebe. And so that note actually came from a talk that I had given, that I was invited to give when I taught at Tufts by a group of Black students who had a conference every year. And it was in response to, you know, who gets to tell our stories. And so, you know, in that essay that Achebe writes, and it's a line that I love and I come back to, he says, stories are not innocent. And so I really like to continue to think with that, that stories do a particular work in the world. And it does us no service to think that they don't or to think that they are innocent. And so I wanted to think that, to think about the work that stories do, the work that narrative does. And Achebe helped me do that. And then a little bit later in the book, you, you talk about Roland Barthes and how his point of view was considered like a, a, a universal truism. Right. Um, that that everybody could understand because it applied to everybody equally. Mm -hmm. Yes, that we would that the that there wouldn't be necessarily an argument about what constituted the studium, that the punctum was much more 
was subjective. It was about one's own response to a photograph. And that would not be shared, but the studium would be something that one could agree on. But even that, as we, as we know and can see, or maybe we don't know, but, but we could see that, that those kind of understandings of a photograph are also quite subjective, right? Because he reads that photograph of James Van Der Zee, James Van Der Zee's family and just, you know, the, the language that he, that he uses in order to talk about it is, is quite clearly about how he is positioned and not how, you know, Vander Zee or I would be positioned at looking at that photograph. I don't know if I actually let you ask your question. <laughs> but I, I think we're, we're getting to it, which is that I recently read an editorial about how important objectivity is in, in reporting. Mm. And um, in 2023? <laughs> yeah, in 2023. And I'm wondering, I mean, if there's anything that isn't very much a part of who you are, like affected by who you are and your history and your biography. Mm. Um, no, I would <laughs> say no. I mean, you know, that what, what, what passes as objectivity, you know, comes from how one is positioned in the world. Any, any, one can fight against, one can try to, and undo the work of particular kinds of positioning, but that is, you know, still undoing the work of how one enters or is positioned in or moves or doesn't move through the world. So, you know, the, this kind of thing called objectivity is often the position of those who are in power, of those who, in the context of North America, and perhaps, and, and don't have to claim that they are raced subjects or gendered subjects or sexed subjects. And so that point of view gets to pass, that unmarked point of view gets to pass as the objective. But of course, it's deeply subjective. There's no way outside of that fact that doesn't mean that one speaks from, writes from, thinks from that position. There are all kinds of ways that we can undo the ways in which we are positioned, but nonetheless, that is not objectivity. That is like really thinking, I think, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, science and math get thought of as, you know, objective, but we see the ways in which, you know, anti-Blackness is deeply embedded in scientific research and the kinds of work that people are doing to, you know, un disentangle that and undo and redress the harms that have been done by that. You know, things about pulmonary research, kidney research, skin, Black people's skin still appears in scientific and medical textbooks as supposedly thicker than white people's skin, right? So those kinds of things have done and continue to do immeasurable harm. And so all of these kinds of discourses that presume um, or insist on their objectivity are oftentimes deeply anti-Black. I think to go back to a part of the book that we haven't really talked about yet, which is violence and bearing witness to, to violence and how <laughs> we take in our past. You write, spectacle is not repair. And I think that's a lovely way to think about all of these various 
plantation tours and museums and yeah um, i think um because i'd also want to say of course spectacle is not witnessing right so witnessing involves a different kind of activation of the body the mind the senses spectacle is about capture um and so i think that we could one can also have vastly different experiences of course of those museums you know i, I think note three i talk about the nazi documentation center in Nuremberg and how surprised I was to be there and to realize, of course, that's doing the particular work of documenting the oppressor. Nonetheless, you know, how not, how to cut that documentation in such a way that it doesn't present it or that people don't imbibe it as um, like aesthetically interesting or desirous. I found it to be a complete, I, it was not at all the experience that I expected to have. Um, and so that's both the, the kind of good work that these places want to do. And then there's the danger of the kind of reproducing the materials of oppression um, in such a way that makes it really clear that one can't presume a we who is entering into those spaces to learn, quote, never again. So it's such a fraught and important project of memorialization, one that I think has unexpected outcomes. It's funny because I was first reading this book when Harlan Crow was in the news and there were so many <laughs> essays about how just because he collects a little Nazi memorabilia doesn't mean he's a Nazi. <laughs> I mean, don't we all have some, you know, bits of Nazi insignia around our house that we show to people? Who doesn't have a sculpture garden? <laughs> yeah, that is a kind of understanding or the, that's a kind of, well, I'm going to go to Claude Landsman. That's, I think, what Claude Landsman means by the violence of understanding, right? It's not an understanding that actually, it's not an understanding, that's an understanding that works to excuse as opposed to an understanding that wants to undo or repair and connected to that idea, I think you, you mentioned this was in Katrina Brown's documentary about her family's history. Faces um, of the Tray, a story from the deep north. Thank you. Yeah. The idea of, of trying to go from guilt to grief in terms of grappling with the past. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's a documentary that I used to show all the time, and I have some problems with it, but one of the things that I do admire about it is Katrina and that several other of her family members feel commitment to grappling with what one of them calls, I think, the conspiracy of silence. And so there's a, you know, I think that guilt is a kind of distanced relationship. Grief, I think, speaks about entanglement. I keep using the word entanglement, but grief, I think, positions you inside the thing and guilt positions you at a distance. And so that movement is a movement that says, you know, like, this is my history and I have to do something about it as opposed to like, oh, you know, I feel so bad. And then moving on, you know, grief, grief is something that also I think, yeah engages the whole body and it says that I'm actually in this. It's a difference between working on something because you know that you are somehow implicated in it and it affects you 
versus like allyship, which is again a kind of distance positioning and a kind of philanthropic position as opposed to like, this is my work to do. Yeah. If that makes sense. It, it does. And then later in the book, you, you talk about the work open casket yes. that was display at the Whitney Museum. And I'm going to quote you. <laughs> the okay. argument over representation, circulation, violence, and consumption gets nodded up, bogged down, and derailed over the question of censorship. And, and I've been thinking about that a lot, partly because we see so many free speech absolutists these days who are mm-hmm. have co-opted that term to mean something very sinister. Mm-hmm. Yes. Who've co-opted it to mean we can speak and you can't <laughs> completely, and- right? So, yeah. So it's, it's, you know, the desire to have only certain voices heard. You know, I think, I think it was kind of mis, yeah, I think it was misleading to call that censorship because I think the, the, the kind of real question was what work, and I'm talking about the Schutz painting now, what work is Open Casket actually doing? You know, for me, it was making abstract the kind of violence that Mamie Till Bradley worked really hard to make present in order to, you know, to say, like, look at what have look, look at what they have done to my son. And so that kind of abstraction didn't, I think, do the kind of work that perhaps even the artist wanted it to do. And so, yeah, and it's also, you know, quite different from the rest of her work the most part, right? Let's, before I ask you about books again, <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the act of regarding. Oh, I love that question. Yeah. And I think that my thinking with that sort of follows through from the work I wanted to do and in the wake where I think the last sentence in In the Wake is something like a sentence that I repeat, I think two other times in the book, is that we Black people are constituted through overwhelming force and violence, but we are not only known to ourselves and to each other through that violence. Because I really wanted to say something about the ways in which you can know yourself to face all forms of violence but you can also look at other people who are in a similar position to you with something like regard. And regard is, is not spectacle. It's not a gaze. It is a kind of mutuality. And I really wanted to think about that kind of mutuality as a kind of practice and ethic that we extend to each other and that we might extend to each other. And that says, you know, I see you. And that that is a kind of powerful counterforce to anti-Black violence. Even if it doesn't shift the violence itself, it is a counter to encounter someone else's regard. That's lovely. Thank you so much. Ordinary Notes is out now. Before we go, Christina, I know you will have no 
trouble with this, but please recommend a couple of books for us. How many can I recommend? Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I'm going to recommend a few. So some books that I really love and then some books that I really look forward to reading. I really love um, John Keane's Counter Narratives. I love to teach it. I think it's such a beautiful book. It's a book of short stories and a novella. I probably shouldn't say this, but one story is like a 10 page long sentence. I just, I just, I just love that book. <laughs> I love and recommend Dion Brand's Nomenclature, New and Collected Poems, which just won the LA Times Book Prize for Poetry yes. and includes eight collections and the new long poem, Nomenclature for the Time Being. Um, what can I say, but you should read this book. Um, Ronaldo Walcott's short book on property, one of a series of pamphlets that are published by Bibliolasis. Um, Quentin Baker's just published Beautiful and Urgent Ballast. Um, Victoria Aduque Bully's uh, collection of poems called Quiet. And then I'm really looking forward to Kinesia Lubrin's forthcoming book of short stories called Code Noir. I'm looking forward to the forthcoming novel by Rachel Eliza Griffith called Promise. And finally, Kelly Hayes and Maryam Kaba's Let This Radicalize You, Organizing and the Revolution of Reciprocal Care. That's lovely. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you so much, Maris. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.